Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And today we are going to see in verses 30 to 33, three foundational realities as it relates to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And it's going to explain to us why believers are saved, why unbelievers are not saved, and why Jesus is the only way to be saved. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me as I read God's word. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Lord, we thank you that you save by grace alone. And that legalistic, man-centered ways of salvation all fail. And Lord, I pray that as we have read that Christ is either a stumbling stone or, or a cornerstone, I pray, Lord, that we would believe in Christ with all our hearts. And that we would glorify you with our lives. So we commit this time to you, Lord. Open our eyes that, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stumbling over the stumbling stone. It's what unbelievers do. That's what Israel, in large part, did. Stumbled. Have you ever stumbled? All of us have. We, right? You've tripped, you've fallen. It's embarrassing. You've tripped and fallen badly even. A friend of mine told me a story about when he was growing up that uh, his dad was, uh, was trying to teach the kids how to use a flashlight on a camping trip so they wouldn't trip on rocks, and he tripped over this big rock, and they all just started laughing at him, and I guess they still do laugh at him because of it. Well, a stumbling can be very embarrassing, but a stumbling, stumble can also be very dangerous. I remember once... In high school, a, a cross-country teammate of mine was, was doing really well in a race, and he was coming to the finish, and he took a slight wrong turn, and he didn't see a rope that was stretched across uh, his path, and, and it clotheslined him and flung him in the air, and it broke his neck. And it was uh, very dangerous, right? Stumbling uh, can be very dangerous, But stumbling over Jesus, that's the worst danger. Stumbling over Jesus is the worst danger. And, and so it's, it's good that we can see three foundational realities today related to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Because we're really getting into chapter 10 next week. We're finishing chapter 9 today, and we're going to get into man's responsibility for his sin. But this passage today is going to explain to us why believers are saved, why unbelievers are not saved, and why Jesus is the only way to be saved. So regarding God's sovereignty and salvation, 
Paul is telling us why many Gentiles are, are, are saved. And regarding man's responsibility for his sin, he's telling us why so many Israelites weren't saved. And so first we're going to look at why believers are saved. And we'll see this in verse 30. So look, start with me at verse 30. And, and the answer, by the way, is this. This is why believers are saved. Because believers receive the gift of faith and believe. Paul has shown us very beautifully, starting in chapter 8 and then on all the way through chapter 9, how God is free to call Gentiles as well as Jews into his kingdom and to save whomever he will. And then he comes to verse 30 and says, what shall we say then? What conclusion can we draw from this? Because what's happening is Gentiles who weren't trying to get saved were getting saved. And, and Jews that were trying really hard to get saved weren't getting saved. And you're like, what's up with that, right? This needs to get explained. And so verse 30 says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. So they weren't pursuing this. In fact, Gentiles were were idol worshiping actively. In fact, Romans 1.18 says they were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They weren't seeking for truth. In fact, they were pursuing evil. They weren't pursuing, verse 30 says, they weren't pursuing righteousness. And pursue is a very strong word. You see two very strong words in this passage, pursue and attain. Pursue and attain. A pursue means to follow hard after someone, to chase down a fleeing enemy, to, to chase down a criminal even. Let's say you witness a crime today and you want to be the hero and you go chase the person down and they're fleeing and you're going to get them and tackle them and turn them over to the authorities. And you're intent on it. This is the pursuit that is being talked about here. It's in the present tense. And what it means is that the pursuit of God's righteousness was continually not on the agenda of the Gentiles. The exact opposite was going on for them. They weren't trying to be saved. They were just trying to live their life for pleasure and however they wanted for themselves. The depravity of pagan Gentiles would have been obvious to those hearing these words, and, and Gentile polytheism, where they're believing in many, many gods, and idolatry was prevalent. And it was just very obvious to people. And, you know, this is how it goes, isn't it? The sins of some people are just billboarded. They're, they're street side. They're advertised for all to see. And, and some people's sins are hidden. We get good at hiding our sins, don't we? Now, by the way, he's not saying that every Gentile was devoted to gross immorality. He's generalizing it here. Origen himself said unbelieving Gentiles engaged in ethical reasoning and moral conduct. Many were zealous for moral excellence. Think Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But in general, they were not seeking after God. They didn't have the word of God. And so Paul is speaking generally, and, and he's saying, so the Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness, they weren't chasing this down. So here's the shocker. They get righteousness. They, they've attained it. They got it. And he said it's a righteousness by faith. So this is really strong. They've attained something that they didn't work for. They weren't trying for it. Now, to attain something literally means that you want to get something in order to, to, to keep it. They didn't want what they were getting until they got it. And, and it, it, the idea is this. They, they have the, the righteousness that's by faith. And so Gentiles are hearing the gospel. 
and they're believing the gospel, and, and they're getting saved. Uh, God imputes righteousness to them. Uh, he gives it to believers. Uh, he puts it in their account. He, he makes them right in his sight. So the most unlikely thing in the world, humanly speaking, has happened. One writer put it this way, the Gentiles were careless in their sin, and they attained favor with God, while the Jews to whom religion was a business had utterly failed. And the reason why they attained eternal life was not because they worked really hard for it, because they weren't. The Jews were working really hard for it, and they didn't get it. And the reason why they had eternal life, any that got saved, was because they received the gift of faith. God saved them. They believed the gospel message. And, and we've seen through Romans 9, it's God's sovereign choice to bring anyone into the body of Christ. Faith, faith is a gift from God. Uh, God's righteousness is, is rooted in his unilateral justification of sinners. The idea is that we don't first pursue God. I, I heard a story recently, or read a story, excuse me, from way back. I think it was D.L. Moody that... that um, uh, told the story about uh, someone who came up to him after he had preached the gospel and said, I've been seeking God for three years and it's not working. And he's like, you're not seeking the one true God. Because <laughs> if you were, you would have known him already. Uh, they didn't pursue God first. God pursued them. And, and the idea is that these Gentile Christians are like seemingly out of the blue getting saved. Like, can you imagine that the Jews were saying, wait, <laughs> wait a minute, we've been working so hard why are they getting what we're working for? William Newell put it this way. Man was lost, could not save himself. Guilty, none could pardon him but God that he sinned against. By nature a child of wrath, not deserving good, unable to change his nature. Allied with God's enemy. A mind at enmity against God, doing things worthy of death persisting in them of the world, not of God. And then he says this, if any move be made towards man's salvation, it must come from God, not man. It must come from God's grace. He must elect to overcome effectually man's resistance because man is going to resist God. We fight against him with all of our might. And faith is a gift. And we saw in verse 23 what God was angling for in saving whomever he chose to show the riches of his glory. That phrase, the riches of his glory. He wanted to make them known. He wanted to reveal the riches. He wanted to put the riches on display. And his purpose in Christ to redeem the elect puts those riches on display because he, he blesses forever his chosen children. And we enjoy the riches of Christ now and forever. If you're a believer, you have the riches of Christ. And that doesn't mean health and wealth now. It means you have eternal riches. You have forgiveness. You, you've been chosen. You have peace. You have God's grace and mercy and kindness. You have redemption. You have joy. You have Christ himself, our hope of glory. And as you enjoy these riches, you just realize they never run dry. You know, if you have a cave of coins, the, the, probably the coins are going to run out at some point, but the riches of Christ, 
that you get to start tasting in this life but will go on into eternity is not the health and wealth gospel, folks. It is, it is the riches of Christ that will, and you will never plumb the depths of that mine that those riches come out of. We will never drain the well. We'll never reach the bottom of the dish. I mean, when I'm eating something really good, I don't want to ever get to the bottom of the dish, right? We'll never dr- drink the cup of his riches dry. And, and the Gentiles were surprised by grace. Here they're not caring about God or his word, but they hear the gospel being preached, maybe by Paul or by Peter or others, and, and they receive right standing with God through faith. This was the majority of the church at this point, Gentiles. Gentiles were more responsive to the gospel than the Jews at this point, and they weren't seeking for this righteousness they were receiving, but they got it because it's free. How many times do we say, well, you know, people won't, people won't uh, value it if it's, if, it's, if it's free. Well, you're misunderstanding the gospel, and that might be true in some things in life, but the gospel says you don't work for it and you get it for free. And some of us are too proud to admit that grace is free. Why are believers saved? They receive the gift of faith. We need to learn the lesson from the Gentiles. Cling to gospel truth and, and reject pagan lies. Every Gentile that got saved was rejecting pagan lies, polytheistic lies, lies about God, things that were not true about the world. And they believed in the one true God. They believed in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Maybe today you're like, I don't know what the gospel is. I'm, I'm just here for the first time. Uh, my friend brought me. I, I don't I don't know what you're talking about when you say gospel. It means good news. What's the gospel? It's that Jesus Christ died for our sins in our place. And that he was buried. And that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that life everlasting is freely offered to all who believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, the scriptures tell us. And you know, if you're saved, you know what, it ha- what happened. You weren't working really hard to get saved. You were surprised by the grace of God. In spite of all your failed attempts at goodness. You get surprised by grace. You weren't even looking for it, and there it was. And one day you're like, wow, I believe this. It could happen to you right now. It could happen to you, as I, as I said what the gospel is. God could open your blind eyes and, and awaken your dead soul so that you would believe. And he would give you the gift of faith so that you could believe. That's how it happens. One thing I'm probably pretty sure about is that most of you have bathed really well this week. Because the room smells good, okay? And, and we know how to wash ourselves thoroughly from dirt and grime, don't we? Someone might have been working on the car yesterday, that grease all over, working in the yard, and you got dirt all over. We know how to wash ourselves thoroughly from our grime and dirt, but we cannot wash our souls from our sin. Only God knows how to wash us clean thoroughly from our iniquities. Only God can cleanse our soul. If you're working really hard right now to be really, really good so that God will accept you into heaven, if you're working really hard right now so that God will be indebted to you, You're flat out wrong about this. Grace is free. So now as we see 
In verse 31 and verse 32, Paul is going to shift his attention to the Jews who were dead wrong about God. They, they were pursuing the law to get righteous, but they didn't obtain the righteousness because the righteousness wasn't going to come through the pathway they were taking. And so this tells us why unbelievers are not saved. And the reason why is because they refuse salvation in Christ. Unbelievers are not saved because they refuse salvation in Christ. They miss eternal life because they refuse God's terms of salvation. They deliberately reject Christ and they're condemned for it. Look at verse 31. He says, but, so there's a contrast now. In contrast to the Gentiles that are getting saved and they weren't even trying to reach you know, uh, God on their own, here's Israel who is trying to reach God on their own didn't get it. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Here's pursuit again. It's a strong word, pursuit. They were pressing forward towards a prize that they weren't going to get because their eyes were on the wrong thing. They were running with great energy, intense effort, hot pursuit, all the lights and sirens on, tracking it down like, like hounds on a hunt tracking a fox or my dog after a rabbit in the backyard. thought last night that my dog was going after like a coyote or something. It was just a rabbit. Every day she goes after the rabbit. One day she's going to get the rabbit. I think she's gotten rabbits before. Right, family? We think we've seen remains. They're, they're taking this great effort to overtake God and make him owe them something and they fail. They're doing the wrong thing. This is like when you're watching a basketball game. And, you know, this is the most uncomfortable thing ever when you're watching a basketball game. It usually happens in youth basketball games. What happens is someone grabs a, a rebound and just starts dribbling as fast as they can to the other end of the court and scores and realize they scored for the wrong team. Should have just had a putback. <laughs> this went all that way and went the wrong way. Pursuing, the, the, the Israelites were pursuing but not arriving at any right standing with God. It's the futile pursuit of Christ rejectors. Anyone who's rejecting Christ is going to have a futile pursuit of, of what they're thinking is going to make them good in life. You got these strong verbs, pursue and attain. You get this imagery of a, of a runner pressing on at, at, for this prize at the end of the race. The Old Testament used it in referring to people pursuing others to overtake them in, in battle. And so here is Israel pursuing the law to be right with God, and their sin prevented them. They were blinded to their true situation. Uh, they were trying to attain something. Attain is a strong word. They were, what this word means, katalambano, it means to, to, to grasp something with force and, and so that you can control it. And they didn't get it. Uh, in the New Testament, Mark 9, it's used of a demon seizing a boy and throwing him to the ground. You they wanted to lay hold of God to control God. They weren't going to succeed. They didn't arrive. In fact, arrive here, they didn't arrive, you know what it means? That, that you get there first. And because you get there first, you're first in line, and so then you get the right to be, you know, in charge. You get to call the shots. So the irony of this whole thing is you got Israel lagging behind the Gentiles, whom they, you know, hugely disdained. 
for their ungodliness. And you got Gentiles attaining the righteousness of God as a gift. And here's Israel attempting the impossible task of trying to be perfect. And they were focused on the wrong thing. You ever been so focused on the wrong thing that you just like got blinded by your pursuit? So convinced you were going the wrong, excuse me, the right way that you went the wrong way and you didn't even realize you were going the wrong way? Or you just, you know, you just trip or fall or do something crazy because you're just so locked into what you're doing? I remember once I was on a walk and I literally walked into a stone light pole. And the reason why is because I was too busy reading as I was walking. I remember once when Angela and I were first married, I installed the kitchen faucet backwards. And you can't just turn it around. I figured, let's just turn this thing around. No, it wouldn't work. You're working so hard at something you think is the right thing, it turns out to be the wrong thing. You might even be sincere about it, but you're sincerely wrong. A friend of mine told me once, he said, you know what? It's like my dad. He, he talked about his dad when he was growing up. and He said, my dad was very devoted to our family's needs. And he worked 24-7. He worked 14-hour days seven days a week, and he said, and I felt like I grew up without a dad. And here's the father who wanted to provide but didn't give of himself. Just lost track of that. Got too focused on this other thing. And so here you have these Gentiles making no effort, you got, and, and they're getting saved, and, and then you have the, the Jews making all the effort and not getting saved. Because human righteousness is wrongness in God's sight. He's a holy God. He, he, he demands perfect, flawless righteousness. And the only way you can get perfect, flawless righteousness is from Jesus Christ. That he makes us the righteousness of God in, in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Think about what Paul thought about his, his supposed righteousness before he became a believer. Now, he had a resume. He had this spiritual resume, did all these good things. God should have owed him big time. He counted his human righteousness, Philippians 3, 8, rubbish. What is thrown to the dogs? He says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Philippians 3, 6. But that which is through faith in Christ. This is what the Gentiles were getting. This is what Paul, a Jew, got. But many Jews were missing. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians 3.9. The Jews would not submit to be saved on the terms that God proposed. They said, no, we're going to try to reach heaven our own way. We have a better way than you. They miss Christ. They, their failure just underscores the universal human need for Christ. And how easy it is to reject him because we get blinded by the way we think we should be acting and doing. God chooses who will be saved. It's not, you go back to verse 16, it's not man's will or man's work. Uh, you got to hear it loud and clear. You cannot work for your own salvation. Your good behavior isn't going to get you there. Verse 31, what the Gentiles attained, the Jews failed to get. Why? Answers in verse 32. Look at verse 32. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So they pursue a law of works and miss the target. They try to 
work their way to God. They refuse to submit to God's way of justification. And by the way, they should have known God's way of justification. Anyone who has ever been justified, made right with God, it was by grace through faith in the Redeemer. Whether before the Redeemer, looking forward to Christ, or after the Redeemer, hearing the gospel story of Christ crucified, buried, risen, and returning. So what Paul says, and you look again at verse 31, they pursued a law that would, not, that would lead to righteousness but did not succeed in reaching that law. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were by works. What Paul is saying here is they're to blame for their condemnation. They, they did the wrong thing. They pursued the law in terms of human effort instead of trusting God to transform their hearts. The Old Testament clearly taught that you should respond to God's grace from your heart. The gospel has a golden thread running through the whole Bible. And so what Paul is saying is that unbelieving Israel is responsible for their disobedience to God's word. And remember how this chapter started. Hey, did God's word fail because the Jews aren't getting saved? No, God's word doesn't fail. The failing is, is on the part of those who refuse to believe the gospel. They were focused firmly on the law of God. They're like a, a pit bull with a tennis ball with this. Instead of listening to God's word in the gospel, they rejected the gospel. They're like, no, we know better than God. And what Romans 9 has been telling us all along is that God chooses those to receive mercy and some receive judgment, and they receive judgment because of their unwillingness to believe the gospel. This is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, that unbelievers did not receive, and, and to receive means to accept deliberately, to, with joy, gladly. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And, and the Jews had all the promises of God. You look at the first five verses of chapter 9. They had all the promises of God. They had the word of God. They had the covenants. They had the giving of the law. They had the worship, the promises. And everything was pointing to Christ. All their privileges pointed to Christ. Can you, by the way, time out. Can you imagine, just think about with me for a moment, how privileged we are to have Bibles we can read. And you think about the without excuse. Like if you hear the gospel over and over again, you're without excuse. You're getting condemned by yourself for your own sins. And God will condemn you on that day if you do not repent before you die. There is no second chance after death. Sinners are condemned for their personal sins. And the supreme sin is rejecting Christ. And here you have all these Jews that missed Christ. They believed wrong things about him. So what did they do? When you start believing wrong things about Jesus, you start lying about Jesus. You start accusing Jesus. You start mocking Jesus. This is what all the things they did. I think we need to learn the lesson from Israel. I want you to listen up on this one. One bit of unsound, twisted teaching and doctrine about Christ is more destructive than a thousand pagan ideas. You get Jesus wrong, you get Jesus in the Bible wrong, you go way off the reservation. Even though some people think, no, 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 we're, we're, we're in the ballpark. 
And they're believing things about Jesus and the gospel that just aren't true. Things like, well, God's going to make me happy all the time. Things like, God owes me. Things like, I'm going to have health and wealth. Things like, I'm not going to suffer. Those are all lies. Learn the lesson from Israel. One bit of unsound, twisted doctrine is more destructive than a thousand pagan ideas. Who are the hardest people to reach? Religious people who think they're just fine. Charles Hodge put it this way, error is often a greater obstacle to the salvation of men than carelessness or vice. Hodge was someone that Martin Lloyd-Jones and even Spurgeon read. They read his commentaries, and I have his commentary on on Romans, and, and this is one of the things he says, error is often a greater obstacle to the salvation of men than carelessness or vice. Now, we look around and go, look what those people over there are doing. They're so sinful. Oh, but we're upstanding and right, and I think there are people who profess faith in Christ that really don't know Christ because they have wrong views about Jesus and wrong views about the Bible, and they think they're a Christian, but they haven't believed the gospel. And I pray that there's no one like that at Grace Church of Orange. But if there is, believe the true gospel. If you've been believing a wrong Jesus, if you've been thinking that God is going to do things that the Bible doesn't say he's going to do, listen again to Hodge. He says, Christ said that publicans and harlots would enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. In like manner, the thoughtless and sensual Gentiles were more susceptible of impression from the gospel and, and were more frequently converted to Christ than the Jews who were wedded to erroneous views of the plan of salvation. He says, let no one think error in doctrine a slight practical evil. No road to perdition has ever been more thronged than that of false doctrine. No form of error more destructive than that which leads to self-dependence and reliance on our own powers and our own merit. You might have even slipped into that as a professing believer that on a daily basis we have to be reminded sometimes the gospel is free, Christ is strong, we are not in control. Someone recently said, I think I heard this two days in a row recently, Sing me your songs, and I'll tell you your theology. Sing me your songs, and I'll tell you your theology. Scripture and, and, and songs, the word of God and songs we sing, just wear grooves into our hearts and minds, don't they? We, we, we think about and we, we rehearse the songs that we hear and sing. And so that's why we work so hard at Grace to have songs that we sing match the word of God so that it's not pulling the rug out from under the gospel. One more thing that Hodge said, and then we'll move on to the third point. He said, to blame God and excuse ourselves is always evidence of ignorance and depravity. Because it is true, the hardest people to reach are religious people who think they're just fine. Exhibit A, the Jews under the law. And then we come to the end of verse 32 and on into verse 33, and you see the truth that gets eroded in shallow hearts. You, you see a bedrock treasure that doesn't move. The faithful cling to this. Why Christ is the only way to be saved. And you see some things about him that he is either the stumbling stone or the cornerstone. He's either the stumbling stone 
or the cornerstone. Again, at the end of verse 32, it says, they have stumbled. So the Jews do a, a full-on spiritual face plant. And, and, and they're, 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 they're stumbling over the stumbling stone. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, literally scandal on, scandalous, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. And I think that Paul had a lot of footing to say what he's saying here as the Holy Spirit is moving him to write. Here's why. Paul had lived it from the other side. You know, the people that can help you the most sometimes are people that have gone through all the error. Uh, one person said to me uh, last year, they said, you know, you can learn from me. I've paid the stupid tax. <laughs> well, Paul paid the stupid tax. He understood Israel's stumbling because he also stumbled in the same way they did before God surprised him by grace and opened his eyes to the gospel truth. You think about this. The same leaders that, that sought Jesus' death were involved in the accusations against Stephen that Paul was in league with, where Paul, pre-Christ, is arresting you know, anyone who belongs to the way. He was uh, overseeing the death of this Greek-speaking Jewish believer uh, named Stephen. He was persecuting Christians as far as Damascus. And then the people that he was in league with previously all turn on Paul when he becomes a Christian. And they force him to flee for his life from Judea, Acts chapter 9, he encounters more opposition everywhere he preaches. They make accusations against him in Corinth before the proconsul Gallio, and they say this, he is persuading people to worship contrary to the law. That's key. There's more problems as he goes on. James, the brother of Jesus, informs him that the believers in Jerusalem were zealous for the law, therefore suspicious of him. On the same visit, unbelieving Jews from Asia were traveling to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They accused Paul of teaching people everywhere against the people and against the law and against the temple. A few years later, AD 62, James is killed in Jerusalem, despite the trouble he took not to offend those following the law. You've got the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, who crucified Jesus, claiming he violated the law. You've got Paul, before he became a Christian, persecuting the church because he thought it trashed the law. You, you've got Paul preaching as a Christian and Jews opposing him for going against the law. So you see Israel had this narrow focus. Just, they're just locked on, and, and it led them to, to reject Christ when they were faced with him. They saw the law as the path to life rather than as what Galatians tells us it was, a tutor to lead us to Christ, to show that you can't save yourself. Israel thought salvation was from human effort. So here's Paul, and he's writing Romans. In this midst of harsh persecution and resistance of the Jews to the gospel, he's writing from Corinth, where a few years earlier, unbelieving Jews had accused him, and he's, it's on the eve of a journey to Jerusalem with famine relief funds to give to, to Jewish Christians. And he knows what danger is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And here's what he says in, in chapter 15 of Romans. Fight alongside me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be rescued from the disobedient in Judea. 
So this was real life, rubber meets the road stuff for Paul. The Jews were stumbling over the stumbling stone. They, they took offense at the Messiah. And then you go to verse 33. And what you notice is, it was all predicted seven centuries earlier by Isaiah. Verse 33, as it is written, authoritatively, talking about the word of God, and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, see, listen, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, 14, a rock of offense, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then he quotes Isaiah 28, 16 again. The person who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. And, and he's quoting Isaiah 28. He's quoting Isaiah 8. Uh, Isaiah 28 is a prophecy against those with false confidence in man instead of God. Uh, they wanted this connection with Egypt so they would be saved from the Assyrians. And God is saying, I have laid a better foundation that will never move. It's a precious cornerstone. Talking about Christ. Isaiah 8 is very similar. God exhorts the people not to be afraid of their enemies because he is the Lord of hosts. He is to be feared above all and trusted. So if you trust in him, you don't have to scurry around trying to find alliances with, with the surrounding nations. God will be your refuge. In, in Isaiah 8, 13, he says, It is the Lord of hosts, Lord of all the universe, sovereign Lord, whom you should regard as holy. He will be your fear. He will be your dread. Don't dread the, the nations. He will become a sanctuary. You trust him. You love him. You obey him. You'll have fellowship with him. And, and, and he says to both houses of Israel, north and south. And then he says this, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble on. And so many didn't believe this was talking about them. A snare and a trap to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So seven centuries earlier, Isaiah is, is prophesying exactly what Romans 9 is explaining. You see it in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's not a verse that says rejoice in today. That's a rejoice pointing to the resurrection. Jesus, the stone valued by God but rejected by Israel's political and religious leaders, this is applied to his vindication by God in the resurrection. Go over to 1 Peter 2 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll notice that Peter is going to use Psalm 118, verse 22, Isaiah 28, 16, and Isaiah 8, 14 all together. And he, he says this right after he says, uh, you come to Christ who is a living stone rejected by men but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is saying, you have faith in Christ, God's living stone. He is going to cause you to be a living stone formed into a spiritual house with God's people, and God dwells in that house. We are a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices of praise and obedience to God through Jesus. And Jesus is the foundation of the temple. He gives his life to all the small stones, all the believers who are being built into a living temple. 
And then he says this, it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor, the precious value is for you who believe. That for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You notice the cornerstone is the cornerstone no matter what, if you believe or if you don't. The cornerstone doesn't move. The cornerstone's not moving. If you choose not to believe, Jesus isn't changing. He is always the same. He will either be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and you will stumble. Here's what it says. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, as they were appointed to do. So what it's saying is, you believe the stone, you won't lose. You reject the stone, you won't win. Either way, the cornerstone is forever in the place of highest honor. Human choices cannot foil God's plan. They are not ultimate. So when a person rejects Christ, the chosen and precious stone, Christ is still in the place of highest honor and glory forever as the chief cornerstone. And rejectors are appointed to doom and they will never frustrate God's plan. This is good news for those who believe. A, a, a rejecter of Christ fulfills God's appointments. Uh, God triumphs even in the rejection of Christ. And Jesus, this, this is clearly telling us, Jesus is the only way to be saved. The cornerstone is the cornerstone no matter what. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except him. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Christ. In Matthew 21, Jesus, speaking to the leaders of the Jews, asks them a, a, a slamming question. Have you never read the scriptures? Have you never read the word of God? And then he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then he says, now the kingdom's gonna be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The stone. Go back to the Old Testament. There was the Ebenezer stone, the stone of help. You know, the Jews had so many pictures looking to the Messiah, and for the most part, many just didn't believe in him. You think about the, the apostles. You know, if, don't just blame those who never believed. How about those who did believe? Uh, what about their inability to accept a Messiah that would die for them? Oh, you will never die for me, Jesus. Maybe this is why he told them, don't tell anyone when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, or he told them, don't tell anyone after the transfiguration. So that stumbling block even applied to the apostles for at least a short time. Obviously, they figured it out by the book of Acts. The stone saves or the stone stumbles. What happens for you in your life today? Is Jesus your stone of stumbling or your cornerstone? Your stone of help? 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you don't believe in Christ or you've been believing a false Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Don't stumble over Christ. Don't, don't miss Jesus. 
He is the issue. He is the rock of salvation or stone of stumbling. Don't get locked onto wrong ideas about Jesus. You need to guard the treasure of the gospel and guard your mind. Look at verse 33. It says this, and it ends this way. The one who believes in Christ, in him, shall not be put to shame. And we think of shame, we always think of being embarrassed, don't we? We always think of feeling a certain way. Oh, I felt so ashamed. I was so ashamed when that happened. This is not about feelings. This is about something actually happening. This is referring to end times judgment. A cross-reference is 1 John 2, 28, that we would not shrink in shame at his appearing. And that, again, doesn't mean that we're going to be feeling really bad and, and shaking. Oh, oh, any unbeliever will be shaking, most likely. But it means that you would fall in judgment, full-on judgment. So the one not put to shame, this means not that you're going to not feel shame. It means that you will be vindicated in the day of judgment as a real believer, as someone with the righteousness of Christ, that you'll be proven to have been justified, that your position in Christ will be acknowledged by God. That's what it means to not be ashamed. So unbelievers will have shame because of sin's condemnation. They will fall in judgment. Believers, not ashamed, cleared, cleared of blame, cleared of suspicion, declared innocent, exonerated, proved to be right. That's why Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not falling in future condemnation. I'm uncondemned in Christ. You know, today as you go, you might get pushed by somebody. You might stumble, literally. You might just step on a crack and stumble or something. You might push someone else. Romans 9 is not talking about people that get pushed by somebody else. They're talking about, it's talking about people who stumble because it's their own fault. And, and also at the same time, the stumbling stone is the cornerstone for those who believe. The secure rock of salvation. Isaiah 26, 3, trust in the Lord forever for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. There is no rock like our God. And, and this is singular. He's not one of many. There is one way to be saved. God laid a particular, specific, sovereign, saving, exclusive stone. And his name is Jesus Christ. What do you do with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Christ will either be your stumbling stone or your cornerstone. And Lord, we thank you that if we're saved, it's on you. It's, it's all because of you. But if we are condemned, it's on us. Lord, may, may all who hear these words trust Christ's cross work and not our own works. We know, Lord, that you will either give mercy or just wrath. That people will either experience the riches of Christ or the horrors of hell. Thank you, Lord, that believers receive the gift of faith. And Lord, may unbelievers not refuse salvation today, not stumble over Christ, not adopt wrong ideas about you and the gospel. You said, Lord, that those who are not offended at you are blessed. Lord, we want our hearts to be right with you. 
We want Jesus, Lord, to be the object of our heart's supreme affection, the, the sole basis of our confidence that, that our hearts would be captivated by your love. And so we pray in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.